This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I am on the roof deck in late July with a very close friend of mine and mentor, Peter Brockway. Welcome to the show. Hey, Pete. How are you? Glad to, glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent. Well, it's, a, it's an honor to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, it's been 20, exactly 20 years since we know each other. That's exactly right. Uh, so I was, the first, I was the first senior associate to work at Brockway Moran and Partners down in Boca Raton. I didn't Raton. even remember that. So you were the, the first. I was the first senior associate. Okay. Yes. The first. And- it's on my resume and on my bio, and I'm not giving that title up ever. Don't- I think I actually have a copy of my old business card as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was That's old kind of fun school. to have that. The blue, the blue bars. Yep, all going yep, towards yep. growth, which we'll talk about. So Peter uh, uh, has been in the private equity world for a long time, um, originally from a fellow Long Islander. So uh, why don't you give your background and then we can pick it up, uh, you know, after you uh, tell people what you've been uh, yeah, doing. Yeah, sure. For yeah, last. no, I grew up uh, not too far from where we are right now, outside of Manhattan on Long Island and was here for as, as I got through high school, but then kind of found my way to Florida after graduate school. I for lots of reasons, I liked it down there. And I've actually only worked in Florida, even though I grew up in New York, I've only worked in Florida now for some 40, 40 years. It's been a while. Most people go down there to retire. You went there to start. I went there to start. Yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly right. So when you get to retirement, it's kind of easy. You already, uh, you already, you already have a exactly. 561 area code number <laughs> exactly. and all set, right? <laughs> Nothing changes. Actually. Nothing changes. So, you know, you, st- you want to talk about your, your entry into TriVest originally and how yep. you kind of got your sea legs there and then start up your own fund? Yeah, through my first part of my career, I was in uh, commercial banking. Actually, I started out with working for a very small uh, operating company that owned a TV station, some other assets uh, in uh, in South Florida. And then I got into commercial and investment banking. And one thing led to another. And here I ended up in private equity, which really wasn't even called private equity at that time, uh, just about 33 years ago in the mid 80s. And at mm-hmm. that time, it really was off the radar. I mean, when you came out of business school in the 80s, people were going into consulting, uh, they were going into investment banking, but they weren't going into private equity because it was just kind of below the radar. And they're um, probably only like 30 private equity funds. Back oh, there, then I think even. the biggest one, I think at that time, I think KKR, I think was like a $150 million fund or something. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. the numbers have just totally changed. But I liked it because I liked doing deals. I kind of got that out of investment banking. But I like being involved with companies for a longer period of time, which I got out of my initial experience working for the TV station and some of the other businesses. So I thought with private equity, you'd be involved in both. You'd make the deals and then you'd, you'd stay long term. You could help the company grow. And I had no idea of, um, you know, what it would become. At that point, I think our fund was $11 million. Wow. We were literally doing deals with, uh, in some cases, no equity or $1,000. Sometimes 5%, That would 10%, be called a highly levered. Highly levered. Highly levered management well, And the buyout. funny thing is when we started back in those days, literally, if it didn't have a 45% internal rate of return target, you wouldn't do it. So yeah. literally, I'd have deals that showed a 40% compounded rate of return, and the return was too low. It didn't get through committee. It wouldn't get. Well, and, and there was no committee. <laughs> no it was committee. my boss. The, right, the, right. The, 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 my boss was the committee because everything was just so simple and kind of low key compared to you know what the industry is today. So to give so to give people background, so in a typical private equity deal today, you'd, you'd assume somewhere around 50, 50 to 70, 50, 30. Or even if, you know, with the higher prices today, sometimes it could be, you know, 70% or something like that. But right. the, so the equity is much higher. And most people, I would say, are doing returns these days on a reasonable case of 
18 to 20 percent. Right. I would say even sometimes accepting lower than that, uh, especially as you get as you get bigger deals, uh, which are still beating the public markets and they're still great return, but they're obviously very, very different. Right. Now, so, the truth, obviously, with returns is some of them are higher than that and some of them are lower than that. But right. That's you what mean everything doesn't show up the way it is in Amazingly the spreadsheet. Amazingly enough, it doesn't wow. work exactly the way wow. the model says. Hard yeah. to believe. So, yeah, just for our listeners here. So internal rate of return is you put money down in year one and then in year five, you make the return and then you calculate backwards what that would have been on an annual basis. So 18 to 20 percent is, is the kind of the target now, I guess, for given the competition in the market and the pricing. Yeah. Now, one thing which is really changing it somewhat is historically the multiples or the prices that have been paid have been going higher and higher and higher. So some of the return over the last you know, 10, 20 years is people are selling typically at higher, mm-hmm. higher multiples than they bought at. Mm-hmm. As long as that stays the same, it won't be a drag, but it, it, it's unlikely to continue at the rate it is now. And, you know, everybody looks at it and thinks, well, maybe multiples come down, which because right now they're at an all time high. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you talk to a, a, a family that owns a, a, a company and they're, they're thinking about doing a private equity transaction, you know, what are some of the things that you say, look, if you do a deal with us or a private equity firm, here's what you should expect. And here's the reasons why you should do it. And then let's talk about some of the reasons why, you know, you're, you're becoming either a partner that you might not have ever had before. You may become an employee, which you've never been before. So, you know, let, let's have a, let's talk a little bit about, you know, the benefits of private equity. And then here's like the risk that, that, you know, risk return, you can't get off that line. Yeah. One of the, one of the funniest responses we've had to our, our outreaching, it was a few years back, we were doing a proactive search in the urgent care market for urgent care centers. And uh, so we're going out to people who are not for sale and trying to convince them that they should sell to us. Right. And we actually ended up doing this deal, which, is, which, which has become a great deal for us. But uh, the owner said, he said, look, you know, I'm not looking for any money. I don't need, don't need any money and I don't want a boss. Mm. And so he ended up getting persuaded it was a good idea. And the reasons he got persuaded is the reason a lot of people get persuaded is, first of all, you diversify your net worth, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're, if you're typically a small business owner, you are, most of your net worth is in the business. And a lot of folks haven't taken significant distributions. A lot of times they've reinvested it into the company. So if you want to diversify your net worth, it's a great, it's a great way to do that. Two is, you know, a lot of times companies get to a level where they need help to get to the next level. Mm-hmm. They need to bring in additional management talent. Maybe they need, uh, maybe they need capital. Maybe they need the experiences of you know, building out multiple states, going out geographically or something like that. And so there are these great advantages that you can get by teaming up with, with a private equity uh, partner. And then the other thing is when you leverage the company, we were just talking about it, mm-hmm. you know, let's say it's 50% leverage. So when you're buying back into the company, you're buying back in at basically half the price that you sold at for the equity. And so we've had a number of cases where someone's bought back in 20% of the company after they sold it to us, and they've made more money from selling that 20% at the end of our deal than they did by selling 100% to us initially. Gotcha. And that's because the company's grown so much. So let's just uh, explain. So there are certain levels of debt that that a private equity firm can take on that an individual can't because they just have a personal guarantee on it. So it's really not real money to you. It's still contingent upon you paying it back. Right. Whereas, you know, if you're doing a leverage recap, you know, that leverage is is most of the time going to the, the owner. 
of the business. So they're benefiting from a dividend up front and then also owning a higher levered business with no right. personal guarantees. Right. And then, like you say, the debt you can get as a private equity source is always going to be more than what you can get as an individual because there's new capital coming in. So that's going to help. So that's underneath. People, underneath yeah, the, yeah. The, the, uh, the, the, the bank debt or the debt. And then also we have relationships and they also know that there's additional resources backing up the company mm-hmm. that give the lenders more comfort. So no doubt. I mean, typically a deal these days is, what, five, six times uh, EBITDA in leverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes bigger deals can be a little bit more than that. But that's kind of the range. And, and most individuals wouldn't dream of, of taking down that much leverage. So when, when you've looked at companies historically, you know, there's this balance between Okay, I can probably push the envelope on how much debt I put on the company, but you know, I've got experience, you've got experience, you've seen people overlever businesses, and you say, hey, look, let's like not do an extra return because if we do what we're gonna do, like this return is not gonna be based on like financial engineering, it's gonna be on operational performance. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the ways I've started that historically is you never want the business to be affected by the debt. You never want it to be limited by having the debt. You want you want you want the capital structure to enable growth, not to inhibit it. In some cases like this uh, urgent care network and I think I can can say who it is, it's MD now which is in South Florida. Mm-hmm. That deal, very unusual, we did that all equity. We actually took no leverage hmm. because we knew we were going to build out a lot of new locations. We went actually from six locations to 42 locations over our hold period of time. And we did not want to be held back at all. So we did that all equity. Now, that's kind of unusual. But but the, 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 the thought that you want to make sure that the company, you never want to have the finance control the company. You want the company to basically be the lead, the lead. And, and for whatever is in its best interest to be what you know, uh, carries the day. So th- that's an interesting uh, segue into, you know, you invested in MD now when, you know, urgent care and clinics were kind of seemed like it was trending towards that way and outside the hospital. But, you know, it wasn't, um, I don't know, I'll give you an example. Like a couple of years ago, I was reading about all these VC investments in like the drone industry. And it kind of like right, right. raised my antenna, you know, no pun intended, to say, you know what, the there's something big that's about to happen. I don't really know if it's really been talked about fully, but like when you invest and you say, okay, look, I'm going to put this investment down into MD now. How do you, how do you calibrate in your mind? Like, what does the future look like when I want to sell this? Like, is there going to be a, you know, is every CVS going to turn into like an urgent care or is like, we're going to set up this regional platform. So how do you kind of like take a crystal ball to your private equity? Cause you know, you need to be, at the right place at the right time, you're the one who said to me, you know, create something of value and someone will pay you for it, but it also helps when everyone wants to get into the sector. Right. And the right. sector is like the neat, the new thing, but you have to get in a little early. Yeah. And you, you try to get in before everybody knows. I mean, by the time everybody knows that you want to be in something, it's probably too late. It's the old joke about that, you know, if your shoe shine person is telling you to go into the stock market, that probably is a sign that's a yeah, top, the right? taxi kid. Yeah, someone who doesn't who. inherently dealing with that every day. Uh, so I think what we tried to do with, with uh, MD Now, and actually we'd done it earlier with uh, Air Medical, which was an air ambulance helicopter company, is look at a couple of things. One is it was increasing the level of service. Anybody who's gone into an emergency room knows that, A, you can wait there forever, you know, you can, mm-hmm. unless you're, if you're 
about to die, obviously they're going to take you in. But if it's, you know, if you've got something that's not life-threatening, you may wait hours. And it can be $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 for, for the visit. With urgent care, it's, you know, typically $150. And maybe if you've got insurance, your copay is 20 bucks or 30 bucks or something like that. And you're in and out typically in under an hour. So it, and it, and it's also favored by the healthcare industry because basically you're taking those non-critical visits off of the emergency room so they can mm -hmm. concentrate on life-threatening uh, situations. So you're helping the cost of the industry, you're helping the c customer experience, uh, and you know that this is a trend that's got legs because those are both very, uh, you know, great, great benefits. The other thing you, you, you know is that you probably are going to have a good way to sell if you can build up a chain. Like when we were six units at MD Now in mm -hmm. South Florida, we were in one county, we were we were important, but we were. That's when you invested it. So that's when that's we kind of a small. Business. And that was a small deal for us. Yeah. Actually, that was a very small. I think it was our smallest deal yeah. ever. Um, but we went from being six in one county to being forty-two across three counties, mm -hmm. and we clearly were the biggest provider in South Florida with a, with a great brand name when we sold. So we're taking costs out of the system. We're, you know, increasing the um, uh, service level to, to customers and we're creating some of value because there's a brand there. Mm -hmm. uh, we did the same thing in a little bit different way with Air Medical, which was Air Ambulance Helicopters. Right. And same thing, actually the, 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 the trips on an air, uh, on a helicopter, if you're critically ill, are expensive. But that first hour, they call it the golden hour, after you get uh, some life-threatening uh, either injury or something like a mm -hmm. stroke or a heart attack is critically important because if you don't get into a hospital, your chances of having serious complications rise dramatically. Mm -hmm. And so you're actually, actually taking costs out of the system by getting someone to a trauma center early getting care, and usually they, their, their prognosis is much, much better. And, so, and that, that was also a, a membership. That was a membership. Too, we, had, right? we had a lot of members. It was yeah. it started not to get into too much detail of it, but it started actually as a membership in very rural areas because these were areas where it would be over three hours to get to a major trauma center. And so people were literally dying because they couldn't get to the hospital in time. I gotcha. And so you bought a membership in your town and it basically gave you the ability to know you would get the service at, um, uh, you know, uh, I think it was, I forget the details, but it was, it was ad ad advantaged. Um, and then you would get to, um, you know, you, you would also be supporting your local uh, service that would be protecting the lives of, of those citizens. So it was a kind of a win-win. Gotcha. So, so you look at businesses and say, okay, there, there's, there's wind at sales. I can get in early six, six locations. You know, that's probably the earliest I've ever seen you right, right. get involved. But, but when you looked at those six locations, you know, how much work did you do on, okay, here's what the unit economics are. And then also say, you know, whether it's this CEO or partner or not, you know, this, this person can go from, you know, he can do from six to 42, or this woman can go from here to there, or do you have a conversation up front? So some entrepreneurs come to us and say, look, I know I can get it to here. Right. Once I get it to here, like that's, I'm not the guy or I'm not the woman to do that. So how do you have those types of conversations and, you know, you're very transparent and open and that's, that's helpful and you're easy to talk to. Um, but how have those conversations gone where you kind of know where maybe it, the company needs to get to and you have alignment on well, those we things? We had a great CEO there and a partner that understood that we needed to add management to get to the, where we needed to. Uh, so we were adding actually executives within a month or two after we, um, after we closed. 
So we added someone who's in charge of real estate. We added a chief financial officer. And ultimately, we added someone who was basically a number two person who became a number one person hmm. to run the company. So our, our partner knew that that was, that was important. His name is Peter Lamellis, Dr. Lamellis. Uh, and he had done a great job, had a, a wonderful vision of what the client experience would be or the patient experience and a vision for what the chain could become and knew that that together, uh, ultimately, the reason he decided to, to work with us is that ultimately, together, we could cr- achieve more than he would on his own. Uh, and so he accepted that vision. But that's really important. And, uh, you know, it's, it takes a certain mindset because obviously you don't have control anymore. Right. Uh, so you can't just unilaterally decide something. And then from our side, I think one of the things that's important in private equity is understand the dynamics of what you're coming into. I always look at it, it's a little bit like a movie. So this movie, you're walking into a movie theater about halfway through, Hmm. and there's been all this action that's gone on before you've got there. And if you don't try to understand how the plot's developed and where the players are and what's going on, you're probably going to make some mistakes. Hmm. So our job is to figure that out and to, to be seamless into the history of the company. And obviously, the, the, the partner needs to understand that it's going to be a give and take between the two of us. And if, if both parties do that right, you, get, you can get tremendous results. Yeah, I've had um, a number of clients, a number of private equity gr- uh, groups now have like a, okay, here's our 100-day plan that, that's like aligned with the CEO and, and the management team. Some of them have a five-year plan. And I've seen, you know, you talk about a movie, you know, how much of the script do you try and write at, you know, before closing versus, hey, look, like this world is somewhat unpredictable and you can pivot in VC <clears throat> or early stage, but it's hard to pivot, you know, some of these larger businesses. So how do you, how do you think about that? Right. And I think as the industry has, has uh, matured, it's m- even more important that you think through that in detail ahead of time. I mean, what's happened a little bit as prices have increased is that margin of error has has shrunk, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're buying something just to use numbers at five times or six times or seven times EBITDA or earnings, you yep. know, your margin of error is pretty good. If you're buying it at 10 times or 12 times or 14 times earnings, mm-hmm. your margin has has shrunk. And I think a lot of people say, I've seen this written and I think it's true, that Today's model is pretty much people are either paying fully or maybe overpaying for assets and then trying to work their way out of that and then to gain by really taking the company forward and, right. and delivering it, value. And it, if you don't do that, it's not going to work. Yeah, it seems like um, everything's about, you know, top line growth and, and uh, growth and EBITDA. And, you know, you see all these books out that are, you know, have that diagonal line perfectly, right. you know, historically right. and then into right. projections. Um, how much do you think... Um, uh, when you look and say, okay, is it a buyer's market? Is it a seller's market? You know, how do you kind of reframe? Like I, I, I was, I was, I was trained originally in at Chase Manhattan Bank and DLJ, right, and then with right. you, and <clears throat> I'm like eight times. Like that's a pretty healthy <laughs> EBITDA margin multiple for a business, right? I'm, I'm basically paying you for eight years worth of earnings. Like, shouldn't that be enough? Like, I'm going to get paid back technically in year nine. So, like, how do you think about or how do you retrain yourself to say? Yeah, that business is worth 12 times. Well, I mean, a lot of it comes in these models we were talking about where you're saying how it's going to work is what is that exit multiple, right? Mm -hmm. So if you buy it at 12 times and you sell it at 12 times and you build the company, it's going to work, right? Because it's by definition going to work. And in a lot of cases, the multiples have increased quite a bit, certainly in the number of our recent sales, they've increased quite, you know, quite well. 
But the, the trick is, I think, you, you can get there, but you realize your margin of error has is, is shrunk, and you are dependent on somewhat on multiples staying high. Now, they're never going to go back to where they were. I, th I think I can say with assurity, I think most people in our industry would agree, where they were 15, 20 years ago. It's not going to happen. Right, but right. could they go down on the margin? Could they go down one times or two times or maybe even three times? That's, that's, a, that's a possibility. So a lot of it, it's t literally these days, we'll model deals with a decreasing multiple on sale and and see if can you get so much growth out of it that you could even sell at a lower multiple than you buy at if you've got a deal that works for you then you feel like you're bulletproof mm -hmm. uh, but it really does it does amp up the pressure to really drive the company forward because at these multiples if you don't you're not going to get the return you want so as you've as you've done deals that have been successful, what are some of the characteristics that you kind of you, you talk about a movie? And I, I kind of talk about this a lot myself. It's like there's an analogy when I see an executive or I see a team and I see a, a business that they're in. I say, OK, that that company's like this company that we did well with. Or right. That, this, well, this and you can see that a little bit with MD now and Air Medical. So they're both in healthcare. They both took costs out of the system. They were they were they were all in, they were taking costs out of the system mm -hmm. and they were improving healthcare. They were improving uh, clients' health or their, their, their amount of time they've got to dedicate to, to, to getting better. So where you see those characteristics, you know, you know, you're, you know, you know, it's, you're on the right side of, of, uh, of things and you're, you're creating value. Sometimes earlier in our um, history, outsourcing was a, one of our trends. We had done a number of companies where we were an outsource provider, mm -hmm. where we could provide a service at a cheaper level or with higher quality than other people, and that created quite a value. So we had done outsourcing, for instance, in aviation. We've done a lot of aerospace deals mm -hmm. over the deal, over the over the years. And then we had a company called uh, Cosmetic Essence or CEI that 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 I think at the time we purchased it did seventy percent of all the uh, perfumes and colognes packaging. in the country packaging and labels. Yeah. Well, and 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 manufacture of. Oh yeah. So okay. we had the ability to, and we actually forward integrated to where we could actually help them, uh, or backward integrated, as Lee mm -hmm. said, uh, design and, and spec perfumes and colognes. But with that kind of manufacturing power, even the biggest manufacturers or biggest brands of uh, colognes and perfumes were coming to us because we could produce it less expensively with higher quality than they could. And they didn't care that you worked with their competitors as long as it's taken. No, out. no, as long as you, you never would transfer technology or, or ideas between them. But it, it, it lowered their cost. And there's such a good margin in perfumes and colognes that, you know, that it wasn't totally critical to them. And we were producing value for them because we had manufacturing abilities that would be way beyond what their brand by itself would, uh, where, where, where it would get you. So, so from your standpoint there, you, you, you like the sector? And this was the best way to basically, you know, provide the bullets and the weapons for, for right. everybody and right. whoever wins at the brand level. That's great. You and then know. you always have additional things, too, because in this case of, you know, uh, perfumes and colognes, it was an entrepreneur who was very, very entrepreneurial, but it probably at a point where he needed to get additional resources into the company to help grow, which we helped him with. And, mm -hmm. and in that case, he, he made more money on selling his 20 percent than he did 100 percent. So you've got a win-win-win where the company goes forward, you create more opportunities, and mm -hmm. uh, and obviously he, he was he was helped out a lot. So when you look at deals, how much of how much of your investing 
do you have to have a passion for a company? It's helpful. I mean, I think I think you realize some you have more of a passion before for than another. And the one thing, and I think most people in the private equity industry would agree with this, is you don't want to just invest in something because you're interested in it. That's that would not. To me, for your investors, that would not be a good idea. Right. Uh, if you think it's a great industry and it's got all the things we look for and you got a passion for it, that's great. But I, between the two, I'd rather take a great opportunity in an industry where you don't maybe have a super interest in the, in, in the business than one where it's a passion, but the business opportunity isn't as good. So the passion helps, mm-hmm. but I think it needs to be additive, not the reason you do it. Gotcha. Okay. And then as you look at private equity groups, you know, we used to always say, you know, we're industry agnostic and we'll look at any deals. And it seems now that's changed. That's changed. Most private <laughs> yeah. equity groups, yeah. it looks like they have like three buckets or three sectors. So how do you, um, you know, and maybe we're going to talk about Blue Sea and, yep. and, and the experience that, that a lot of the partners there had uh, at Brockway Moran and, and, you know, some of the successful deals at Brockway kind of like have given them the knowledge base to, to go into those sectors and be the smartest people you know, in yeah, the room well, I, or know everything potentially. About I mean, the I think industry. that's what's happened over time. And there still are some firms that are broad enough and big enough that they can be very, very wide. But most private equity firms concentrate into certain sectors. And the reason's pretty self-evident is that if you concentrate in an area and you know all the activity there or most of the activity, you're going to be smarter. And, mm-hmm. and it always is a little bit of a, um, a concern when you're competing against people who specialize in a sector and they won't pay that price for that particular asset, but you will, you know, you tend to think, well, I'm probably the one that's, that's wrong. Right. right. Um, so most firms have gravitated now, like Blue Sea Capital, for instance, is aerospace and defense, because that's an area that we had historically done a number of deals with uh, back at Brockway Moran. Uh, healthcare, and we've talked about some of the healthcare deals we've done. And then general industrial, growth industrial. Um, so those are, those are things that you can build on and you use that knowledge for, for, for the next deal. And I think it's, it's one of the, one of the very clear changes in the industry over the last 10 or 20 years. And I don't see that changing just mm-hmm. because there's such an, you know, it's, it, 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 it definitely brings value. And I think it, it resonates with investors too, because they think you're bringing something more than just money. If someone thinks it's just money and I'm the investor giving you the capital, mm-hmm. that's not going to work. So, so for some of the people that have been listening to some of the, um, the political debates and now like there's this, um, you know, arrow that's being tossed at the, uh, or shot at the, at the private equity community right, in the, right, over the last couple right, of weeks, right. you know, and, and our conversation so far has been about, okay, I'm going from six locations to 42 locations. I'm building a management team, which all creates jobs, right, whether it's construction right. jobs, whether it's maintenance, whether it's utilities, whether it's doctors. So, you know, just, just for the, uh, maybe a, a, a quick commercial that like the private equity world is not like, we don't buy, you, you've never bought a business and say, Hey, the reason why I'm buying this business is going to, I'm going to cut out $2 million of overhead. So no. can, we, can we just talk about, you know, like the businesses that you've invested in, what they were, what they are today, how you kind of view human capital and how like private equity is not here to, erase jobs. We're actually creating growth. And the only way we do that is with people. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I think the, the, the arguments get a little, little silly because private equity is really like any other business, right? That's trying to grow. So generally what you're trying to do is grow revenues. You're trying to grow the bottom line and you're generally good, healthy companies are growing employment in their, in their companies. The time where, you know, the stories where people lose their jobs, which you never want to see 
is just like corporate America where, you know, they acquire a company that's somewhat similar to them, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's some redundancies in jobs. And so in those situations, just like in corporate America, this happens all the time. It happens in private equity too, where you do sometimes lose jobs because you're, you're buying a like company and you're combining operations. But I don't see private equity as different than corporate America. Mm-hmm. You're trying to grow a company. And overall, I think the track record of private equity is growth overall, is creating more opportunities and jobs and, and earnings. And, um, you know, correctly done, it's a very hands-on activity where you are making a difference. This isn't like, you know, I think some people think it's like a hedge fund if you're just picking the right stocks and you're just, you yeah, know. You that, can't buy and sell private equity uh, portfolio companies. <laughs> no. And it's typically a four to nine year type of horizon. Mm-hmm. And and the best firms, uh, lots of firms, you know, are really building companies and creating value. So I think that the, like a lot of things, the, the arguments get overly simplified and it becomes kind of a caricature of what's going on. But properly done private equity is uh, very, uh, very good for the economy, very good for employment. And there's just lots of examples of that. And something happened at the, uh, a recent debate I was listening to where uh, Kamala Harris said, uh, nobody owns stock, you know, in, in the public markets that are in the, you know, and I'm like, well, you have CalPERS and CalPERS owns a lot of stock and that's in everyone's retirement fund. That's well, that's in the, the thing is that a lot system. of the beneficiaries of private equity are actually pension funds or right. are, 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 so are talk, talk about where I don't know if people fully appreciate that. It's not just like, you know, 10 high net worth investors that are in, you know profiting no, no. for private yeah, equity. A lot of it is, is nonprofits. It, it, it could be pension funds. A lot of college endowments or other endowments are, are investing in that. And they're investing it for a simple reason. They think that the risk return is beneficial, right. that they're getting a return that they couldn't get in the, in the, uh, in the public markets. Uh, and that it's, you know, an egg, the, the, the return is more than made up for but the, by the risk that takes. Clearly, there's there's a more risk just because of the capital structures. But, yeah, no, the, the beneficiaries of private equity are all over. And a lot of them are, you know, are, are people who are pensioners or people that are going to college. And, and just so everyone understands, the, the, the investors, so if it's NYU Endowment Fund or if it's CalPERS or if it's Florida Retirement System, um, they get their money back before the private equity professionals make any money. So I feel like that's an important... Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that the fee, I think one of the things that people talk about, the fee incomes can be fairly fairly high, and especially for the more money you have under management, obviously Mm -hmm. that goes up. So there is some money that's made off of just the management fees, and the bigger you get, you know, to be be fair. But the real real profit, especially for mid-sized funds and below, is to make the investments work, right? And right. and 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 usually, you know, the thing that makes it work is is investors. If 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 everyone is doing well together, nobody's upset, right? If 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 mm-hmm. an investment's very successful and twenty percent of the gains are going to the private equity firm and eighty percent to the investors, everybody's fine. The time people rightfully don't like it is when the money manager is making money, but the investors aren't. And I think the private equity model, for you know, by and large, delivers that. Yeah. So talk about what you're doing now. So you're officially an executive in residence at, at Wake Forest. I so, am. So how did, how did that evolve and, and how do you feel, um, you know, teaching other people about, you know, some of your business successes and, and rules and, you know, 
you know, steps along the way and obstacles, you know, how, how do you feel about that and, and how's that going? Yeah, no, it's been a delight. It's, uh, it's really been uh, a joy to do this over the last few years and, and continuing doing it. And I guess we'll be starting in about a month. Um, my dad actually taught at Hofstra here on Long Island oh, sure. right after he retired. So he was a CEO that had, uh, uh, run a number of companies. And then very late in his 60s, going into his 70s, they asked him to teach at Hofstra. He taught marketing for about 12 years, and he taught until he was just not able to do it anymore, which is early 80s, believe it or not. Wow. And he had a great experience. The students really enjoyed it. They stayed in touch with him. Were very. Uh, he had a really interesting uh, career. He'd been at CBS as a president of Vision, and he'd mm. run Olympus Camera here in the U.S. And he had a lot of really neat, uh, uh, first uh, Manhattan Cable TV, which was the first cable TV sure. operation he did here in the city with Chuck Dolan. And so there were a lot of great experiences, and he brought that to the classroom. So that helped inspire me because I could see how much he enjoyed that and how much the students got out of it. And actually, my favorite professor uh, in college was a gentleman who had retired, and he was just great. He, he, he taught finance, and he also gave some great examples out of, out of his uh, history. So as time went on, I realized that there wasn't at Wake Forest a private equity course. And initially, I thought maybe I'd guest lecture or something like that, but there was no one to teach it, and mm. they really didn't have any plans. So a few years ago, one thing led to another, and we said, well, we could develop a course. There's a great uh, textbook uh, at a Harvard Business School by Josh Lerner that we could use. And what we do is we both do chapters out of the textbook, and we, we do the typical lectures and those sorts of things. But we also have a number of industry executives from private equity come in. Oh, good. So we've got We've got investors. We've got CEOs. We've got uh, you know people who are lenders. We've got we actually have private equity firms that come in and do their pitch to the students that the students are basically the investors. And so put yourself in the place of would you invest in this fund or not, and hmm. why? Ask the questions you'd want to know uh, if you were going to invest in this fund, and the. The private equity executives are great to go along with that. So we'll have venture funds that do that. We'll oh, have great. private equity funds of all certain size. Uh, so it's been great. The the students have been very uh, have been have been wonderful with their their feedback, and uh, it's really a neat neat ability to you know to, to to provide that value. And then also, it's kind of interesting is try to stay on top of the latest trends because one of the things we teach them and, and we hopefully follow is private equity is continually evolving, right? Every, mm -hmm. it changes day by day, month by month. And so we try to stay on top of all those trends. So it's actually, you know, I can actually even do that more than if you're doing day-to-day -day in private equity because here you're kind of surveying the whole landscape from mm -hmm. soup to nuts, whereas typically if you're running a private equity firm, you're in your own segment. But it's been uh, it's been great. I have a co uh, uh, professor who's uh, taught at uh, Wake Forest for 20 years, who who worked with me, uh, Bill Markham, and uh, it's been a great partnership. That's great. That's great. So, what are some of the quotes or uh, you know Brockway isms that we can uh, that we could at least get well, on get a audio kick out of here? It because I do hear some of them coming from from you, even even I in still print. quote you. Yeah, I, I still very, I still tagline you on those. I you do all the time, and I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And some of them I actually had borrowed from some other people. So yeah, I, yeah, they, they got they, lost. They, yeah, they kind of revisionist quotations, I guess. Right? Exactly. But I think you you talked about the one that's kind of you know the experience is what you get when you don't get what you want, and to create something of value and people will pay for it. It's absolutely, absolutely true. But another one which we kind of mentioned is investing in what you know. Yeah. You know, yeah. you've got to know. If you don't if you don't understand the industry, you're, uh, you know, you're in trouble. So those are all ones. And then sometimes it's just classic stuff like pigs get slaughtered. And that's true. If you're always hanging on for that last buck, yep. you got to leave something in the tank for the next people. When you sell a company, you've got to have a good growth strategy. And you want your companies to 
do well after you sell them. No right. one wants the reputation. You sell it basically when the transmission's about yeah. to fall out. Yeah, right? One guy said to me one time, uh, so if it's a good time for you to be uh, selling, why is it a good time for me to be buying? Yeah. <laughs> you know, well, and and the truth is, and it's a great thing about buying from a private equity firm, is we've got to turn a company in four, five, six, seven years. And, and when you've got a big gain, you should take it. So there are lots of companies that we've sold, almost all of them, that we would love to be on the buy side mm-hmm. because it's still got a lot of legs to it. But, but we just have to to sell. It's one of the things actually the private equity industry is working now to address with these long dated funds. So there are a number of funds that will hold for 15 to 20 years. Even the biggest private equity firms mm-hmm. are getting these long dated funds because they were frustrated that you would have a family office come in and family office says, hey, look, we're not going to sell you. We're going to keep you for the long term. You don't have to go through this every five years. You know, all these great reasons. And now the private equity folks have come up with a, um, you know, a uh, model that basically can keep it for 15, 20 yeah. years. And so they call it like an evergreen fund is yeah. what I've heard. I don't know if it's yeah, evergreen, long dated, or, there are different yeah. terms for it, but mm-hmm. the same thing, a long time hold. But it is harder to grow company. Once a company gets to a certain size, it's, it's much harder to double, <laughs> you know, as, as, oh, as sure. the law of large numbers, you know, things are, you know, it seems like the the middle markets. You know, you've got a you know five to ten of EBITDA to get to twenty to twenty five. If you're well, really good at that, I always think the uh, the lower middle market and up to the middle market's more like sports cars, right? So you can you know you can turn on a dime quicker. You can make mm-hmm. more progress as a as a percentage just because it's smaller. And the bigger the company is, obviously, it takes longer. It's like a you know. The tanker, they always sure. think turning around takes forever. Uh, the flip side is for the bigger funds. Obviously, it's harder to invest big pieces of capital. If you've got to invest in bulk and you've got a lot of capital, then that's a that's a place. And you still can earn a great return, obviously, on the bigger deals. But the, the smaller deals, you can get kind of crazy returns where you, you know, make 10 times your money or 15 times your money, where, you know, on a bigger deal, if you get two times your money or three, you're, you're, you're very happy with that. Right, right. So uh, let, let's go back to August of 1999. I, uh, I lived three blocks away from the office, and I sat around a table. We like that because you could be there basically yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. That's back when uh, yeah the cell phones were working, so we, we were able to get. I was able to get there within like seven minutes. In my that's good. That's my good. green Camry with a fin on the back. So we were at a conference room table, probably this this size. I would right, say. Right. And you explained the internet to me. I did explain I the internet. I never know, understand it quite as well as after I saw That's your chart. Great, it's so I, I brought a big piece of white oak tag yep. from yep. Uh, from Kinko's at the time. Yep. And uh, I laid out for Peter all the different players in the internet space and how the internet was going to evolve. Unbelievable. It was good, it was right? right? You were right on target. Spot on. I yeah. was just a couple of years a uh, couple of years too early, I think, but it was a good it was a good experience. But um we uh, we you know we had the Gold's Gym deal under LOI. Which was a fun deal. I mean, Gold's Gym was fun from the start to the to the end. And the fact you were in the middle of it, obviously, has led to lots, lots of great yeah, things. Yeah, well, the it reason was, why I'm doing this, I guess, is all because of that, that deal. It was I mean, one of the clearly. more interesting deals to, to, to actually negotiate because, um, it was, it's, I mean, it's a real brand, right? So yeah. of the three owners that, we, that were there, two of the three of them were bodybuilders, right? Uh-huh. I think we had Mr. Empire State and Mr. World. <laughs> And so these are back in the days when you actually were in a closing room to do a deal. And so we're in Chicago for a week closing this deal, a week in person in the mm. see what was then. It doesn't this, happen anymore. It doesn't it's happen. Now it's all conference calls and all electronic. But so we're there trying to get this deal closed. And um, the, the very passionate people on the other side, but but they 
you know, they're, they're, they're people in the bodybuilding business. So we had something in the language of the, of the deal that said all of the assets of Gold's Gym would, you know, we would own. Right. And so it became apparent that there was a bit of a holdup with, with, with the primary seller that he had the Mr. World title. He thought the Mr. World title was one of the assets of Gold's Gym and that I would become Mr. World. No. <laughs> Which I know it's easy, for those of us here, it's easy to believe that I would be Mr. World. Yeah, well, you used to, bulk, you, you were bulked up before, I was really, yeah, really, really yeah. bulked up. So literally an hour uh, conversation basically to convince that no, that was a personal asset. It wasn't an asset of Gold's Gym. And that, no, I was if not going to become Mr. World, though. I mean, I don't know if you would have stayed in private equity. I this probably long. would have just made that my gig. You know why? Yeah. If you're Mr. World, why fool around with yeah, private equity? Yeah, just be equity? like the, the the Arnold tour, exactly the, the Brockway tour, and it'd be Mr. World. But we know you talked about <laughs> we were talking about passion beforehand, and there was so much passion on that brand. We used to go to the convention with a thousand people who were Gold's Gym franchisees. And the yeah. passion was absolutely incredible. There was, you know, the marketing side of it, Derek Barden, who ran the marketing side, was just super passionate about the brand and the marketing was great. And it was just one of those brands that kind of, you know, captured your imagination. And uh, it was a lot of fun from start to finish. It turned out to be a good investment for us as well. Uh, but, you know, the fact that it led to us yeah, being it's led together. led to the Halo talks and, uh, and everything else. Well, you else did a great done. job because you really understood it. And you, with, with your Internet, obviously, you put us into thinking about the Internet a lot quicker than we would otherwise have thought. Yeah, I think I was uh, I helped architect the original BroadwayMoran.com site as well. I bet you did. I was way ahead of my the time. The only thing there. is I remember our, the conversation <laughs> back and forth is I did say, I did say, Pete, I think we're not venture capital investors. I think we're private equity investors and that we can't do a venture capital deal in the you middle are, of this you, fund. You are 100% right. Um, look, I came out of business school kind of, you know, they, they kind of brainwashed you. At business school. And say, actually, I don't know if I've ever told you, but that staying away from the internet helped us because so our first fund's a 1998 fund. So yeah. they look at funds by vintages. And that 1998 fund was in the top 10% of all private equity funds raised in 19... And basically in performance. And one of the reasons is we stayed away from things we didn't understand. Yep. And we were in venture capital, so we stayed away from the internet. Yeah. We, we stayed so away from telecom. Though, right? It was because everybody yeah. was saying this was the place to go. And telecom, we stayed away from telecom. Uh-huh. And those two areas just obviously crashed. And yeah. we avoid that uh, carnage, luckily. And uh, but but still, the, the deal turned out to be great. And the fact that we got to know youth from it is a, yeah. is a it well. Was a thanks joy. again for letting me go on to that uh, that foray into the desert. Well, it was great. I think Phoenix. It, was, it was good all around, and it, yeah. it brought out your entrepreneurial spirits. Yeah, I don't think I could have done anything else. I mean, I was trying to be a good soldier for you. You were. <laughs> you absolutely were. I always tell people that I was in, that uh, Fitness Inside was an was an affiliate of Gold's Gym, <laughs> even though like just to make it feel like it was like and you were under that, your consent. And, and it was, <laughs> with, and it was with and under your consent. Um, but with, with the golds deal, you know, obviously there's, you know, a lot of passion. There was a lot of different ways you could take it. You could take it to the internet. You could have said, okay, let's do franchising licensing. Let's build corporate, you know, ha- you know, maybe if you can think back to, you know, what was in your wheelhouse to say, okay, this makes the most sense. And, and it kind of led back towards acquisitions and greenfields, which was definitely right, and like, we were, you know, and one of the biggest frustrations in this business is you can't, hold it forever. So we had five years with Gold's Gym. What yeah. we were trying to do uh, over those five years, and now this is pretty dated, right? Because we sold about 15 years ago. Uh, but what we were trying to do is to broaden up the, the the brand a little bit, to make it a little more welcoming to people without you losing that heritage. So mm-hmm. keep, the, keep the bodybuilder heritage, but make it more welcoming to people so that they don't feel intimidated. And when you walk in, you walk into cardio 
and the strength is in the back. Right. You don't. What'd you in. do with the logo? The logo, we basically kept it the same, and we just shaved the guy down a little. Though, yeah, I think. we just yeah, we just kind of softened some of the edges. Yeah, uh, and so that was our our goal. And then and then the franchisees were the backbone because there's only one gym that historically Gold's Gym owned. We also merged with someone in Washington, the Galliani brothers, sure. who were great partners, and they they actually had made the deal to buy Gold's Gym, uh, but. We wanted to keep the franchisees close to us, and so we didn't change things a lot with the franchisees because right. we said these people have brought us here. They've been our partners, and we want to build on it. Uh, so those were all the things we were trying to do with it, and, you know, it, it worked well. But unfortunately, after five years, we we had a sell. Got it. Well, it was a successful deal, and uh, I, I only want nothing the best for Gold's Gym. Us they as deserve well. it. They, us they, they as deserve well, for to. sure. To get back into the spotlight. Yep. So as you look forward here over the next several years, what are you looking to do personally, you know, besides the Wake Forest and, and you know, you've got your some side investments and obviously you help uh, the Blue Sea guys. So what's uh, what's the yeah, life no, it's, plan? It's, 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 it's a great part of life. So obviously the uh, the Wake Forest is, is taking some time and, and effort. I'm a number of uh, charitable boards I'm on as well. Uh, Boca Helping Hands and the Boca Regional Hospital, and then also investments. So it's been really great to make investments with people I know uh, that I've known for a lot of years, private equity, both in funds and also direct investments as well. Uh, so all those things are kind of fun to keep in my hand in, in, in those things, but without having the day-to-day responsibility. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting part of life. And, uh, it's funny, my, my, uh, my, uh, mother had these things that she would say to my father that have, have kept in my mind. One of these, when she was a counselor in the seventies and she just says, you have to retire to something, not from something. Hmm. So I've got a lot of twos as far as Wake Forest gotcha. and some of the board work and some of the investments I'm making. And the other thing which she said, which is a great line is, I said to my father, you know, I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> so you got to make sure you got the middle of the day well occupied of stuff for your doing. Gotcha. So I've got a number of things that basically are, uh, are very enjoyable. And, and how do you feel about your daughters both being into the technology and you know, probably throwing venture ideas out at you, and you have to kind of calibrate those. As, yeah, and they're two, two as a father to- and an investor. Yeah, they're two totally different. Uh, <laughs> so our younger daughter has actually got a venture capital back firm that she's. Matter of fact, she's in six pitches today. Oh wow! So it's kind of interesting to just be speaking to her. She's going to six, you know, different appointments today with various venture capital firms. So she's living that life of a venture mm-hmm. capital back firm. Our older daughter works for a company that goes back to 2012. So it's a little bit more. It's definitely more mature, and she's running one of their business units. So she's seen it where it's gotten a little bit more, uh, you know, a little bit more mature, and now it's got a number of people. Uh, but they both have gravitated to young companies that are fast growing, that mm-hmm. are exciting. They both worked in San Francisco. Our younger daughter is now here in New York. But New York has a great venture capital backed ecosystem as well. Yes. Uh, but it's kind of interesting to see it through their eyes and kind of root them on. Yeah. Now, those are companies that you don't put much debt on. Those are all equity Equity yeah. plays. Yeah, I think to get that, you do need earnings. <laughs> Although, actually, still, my, still. <laughs> my, my, my older daughter's company, I'm sure, has earnings. But I'm talking more about the uh, our younger daughter, which is a startup. Yeah. Well, thanks for being on the show. It's been a good education for everyone. Great to see you, as Great always. Great to see you. And uh, hopefully people got some good uh, nuggets of uh, wisdom out of this. And, uh, you know, to, to some of the quotes that I'll continue to live by and you as Go well. Go ahead and use them. And no right. royalties required. No royalties required. Peter Brockway, <laughs> Halo Talks, NYC. Thanks, Peter.